At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his friends and close friends, his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted, uh, lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. 
Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people, and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because of the gift because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. It's rather funny when you hang around Christians long enough, <clears throat> the kinds of things and attitudes that, that you pick up. And uh, uh, I, I mentioned last week about the whole Church of Scotland uh, or the Presbyterian churches in Scotland, how, how so many denominations divided for, for various reasons. And one denomination that divided, divided because there was an elder in the church who was also one of the, the, the justices in the, in the land. I think he was called a Lord Justice. And uh, the Lord Justice uh, had another Lord Justice who died, who was a Roman Catholic. And so the funeral service was a Roman Catholic funeral service. And so this Lord Justice, who was required, because he was a Lord Justice to attend the funeral, attended the funeral even though it was a Roman Catholic funeral and not a Presbyterian funeral. And so there were people in his, in his presbytery, in his denomination, who took exception to that and brought him up on charges because he, as an elder in the, in the denomination, went to a Roman Catholic funeral mass. And there was a big argument about this, and then there was a big division and a split because some people supported the guy and other people didn't. And, and so they couldn't reconcile. So they did like uh, many Christians tend to do. They divide up 
and create two new denominations, which is all rather silly and rather hilarious. And we look at that and we look back at that and we can think how foolish that seems to us in retrospect. But actually, you know, I talk with Christians all the time who have similar kinds of attitudes. You know, some Christians think that uh, good Christians should never have a friendship with a, a Muslim or never have a friendship with, with a Hindu person uh, or, you know, cannot frequent a shop that maybe is, is owned by somebody of a different religion or a different background uh, or couldn't go to a wedding uh, that maybe was a Jewish wedding or a Hindu wedding or something like that. And, and there's a lot of debate, you know, can, can you do that? And there's a lot of fear I think from Christians that if we go and we happen to uh, rub elbows, so to speak, with Hindus or with Buddhists or, or with Muslims uh, or with atheists, that somehow, you know, somehow we're not supposed to do that. And we like to find verses in the Bible, you know, that says, come out from them and be separate and say, oh, well, you know, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't have that kind of attitude without realizing that that attitude that attitude that we shouldn't associate with people who are different than we are really is a historically, a biblically Jewish attitude and it's not the attitude of Jesus Christ. But when the Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost and you had 5,000 people who got saved, quite a number of Gentiles were among them uh, some of them were proselytes. In, in other words, they decided to be, they were Gentiles who decided to become Jewish. And so they were there in Jerusalem on the great day of the feast. But many of them would have had Jewish friends and, and relatives to share the gospel with. And we know in that early church that there was a lot of growth, that there were a lot of uh, Gentile Christians as well as Jewish Christians. And that presented a really big issue. What do we do about this? Uh, because the Gentiles, they might have a little pork, you know, they, they might have a bacon buddy for breakfast, but a good Jew would never have a bacon buddy for breakfast, you know, because bacon's unclean, pork is unclean. And, and so, so should I even be in the house? If pork's in the house, should I be in the house? You know, what, what should I do? And it was a real crisis that the church was wrestling with. And so here's Peter, and Peter is out on holiday and the Lord begins to deal with that. And that's the passage that we read today. And uh, as, as you saw in the passage, you know, Peter is there. He's visiting another guy named Simon. He's a tanner, so we'll call him Simon Tanner. And so he's at Simon Tanner's house. Simon Peter's at Simon Tanner's house, which is by the sea, which, you know, tells us that it's a really good Christian thing that we do when we take holidays by the sea. You know, Peter started it. You know, that's one of the most important lessons I think we learned from, no, no, okay. Maybe it's not one of the most important lessons we learned from the text, but I can identify with Peter wanting to take a holiday by the sea. And uh, so he's there, and the Lord is going to use Peter to resolve this issue. And as he does so, the Lord is teaching us as Christians today a number of really important things that we need to learn and we need to apply and we need to be aware of in our lives as Christians, especially here in London as every day, I mean tomorrow, uh, not tomorrow, none of us will go to work tomorrow, uh, or some of us might, but Tuesday certainly, another work day, many of us will go back to work on Tuesday. 
And, uh, and we'll be rubbing shoulders with people from all kinds of different backgrounds and, and things. And, uh, and you know, people can pick up if our attitude is not right. People can tell if we, we think of ourselves as a little better than everybody else. But at the same time, I mean, what do you do? You go to work and, and the guys you're kind of hanging out with, they're all swearing and, and saying all this stuff that you don't want to really hear. And you don't want to, you know, how do we deal with all of that? How do we understand that? Is God working in that? What's going on? And we see the answer to these questions and a number of others here in this passage. And so I'm going to go through briefly in the passage, and I'm going to point out very quickly seven things that the Lord is teaching us here. Now, don't get too freaked out by the number seven. It's a good biblical number, uh, and you know we won't go uh, that long in, in all of this. So, first of all, we have verses 1 to 8. And in verses 1 to 8, we're hearing the story of Cornelius. Cornelius, he's a Roman centurion. Remember, the Romans were the occupying force in that day. Uh, So, the Romans were not people who were well-liked. They were occupiers. They were cruel. They were the ones who crucified Jesus, you know, nailed him on the cross, Uh, they crucified thousands, literally thousands and thousands of people. So they were not well-liked people. But here's Cornelius, and the text talks about him as kind of a righteous man, a man who just seems to be walking with the Lord in some way. He's giving alms, he's very generous, he seems to be very good uh, for his people. Uh, and doing good things not only for the Jews that are around him, but also for the Gentiles that are around him. And he's there, and one day uh, uh, an angel appears before him and says, hey, Cornelius, guess what? God has seen your heart. He's seen the good things that you've done. God's taken notice of this, and you've got favor with God. Now I want you to send, go to Joppa, send some people to Joppa and get this guy named Simon Peter because you need him to come and talk to you, tell you a little bit about what's going on. Now the first thing that God's teaching us here is that God is at work in the world beyond what we can see. God is at work in the world beyond what we can see. God is at work in people's lives in ways that we don't know about in ways that we can't see and understand the, the, the Romans, they were not Christians, they were not Jews, they were not godly people overall. So God is at work. God is at work right now in Muslims. God is at work right now in Hindus. God is at work in Buddhists. God is at work in atheists. God is working all over the world in ways we cannot see. One of my favorite stories, missionary stories, is uh, a man who had gone to an island. He was the first uh, European, you know, light-skinned person to go on this island. I think it was in Indonesia, one of the Indonesian islands. He went into this village and to share the gospel. And uh, when he went into the village, it was uh, the village was led by two brothers who were co-chiefs, and everybody in the village instantly repented and surrendered their lives to Jesus. And you think, whoa! I mean, that hardly ever happens. 
Well, it turns out that the father of these two boys had a dream from God years earlier. And in the dream from God, there was this light-skinned man that was going to be coming with leaves bound up in animal hide. Sound familiar? And in those leaves were the truth. And when he came, they were to listen to the man and do whatever he said. And the father told his sons, and then he died. And the sons, when this man came into the town, the whole village received Christ. Now, this is God at work in the world. God is at work in the world all around us. You don't know how God is at work in that person in your workplace who might be swearing today, but tomorrow might be surrendering his life to Jesus. You don't know. And that's the point. Peter had no idea what God was doing on that day when he was sitting on the roof uh, worshiping the Lord. He had no concept. But God was at work in the world. And God is doing that all the time. He's at work all around us by His Holy Spirit. He's looking in the hearts of people. And there are many people who are not following Jesus, who, who some of whom maybe have never even heard the name Jesus, but their hearts are soft before the Lord. And the Lord sees what they're doing. And the Lord approves of what they're doing. Doesn't mean they're saved. But the Lord is at work. The Lord is at work. So, so that's what happens. And so we, we go down now to, to Joppa where Peter's hanging out up on the roof. He's praying. It's about noon. He's hungry. And, uh, and so he's there. He's praying. He's hungry. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, the, this vision, he has this vision of this sheet coming down with all kinds of creatures and animals. There are probably some good shrimp on there. Uh, probably a bacon buddy, uh, bacon and eggs, you know, a few things like that, maybe on the sheet, I don't know. Uh, but he saw all these things that he wasn't supposed to eat. And the Lord said, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. I thought about calling the sermon that, by the way, rise, kill, and eat. Uh, I thought maybe that would be kind of provocative, but uh, I thought in the end, no, I won't do that. And uh, Peter says, no, I can't do that, Lord. I'm a good Jew. I've never eaten anything that's not clean, that's not appropriate, that, that's been forbidden. And there was all kinds of things in the Old Testament that were forbidden for people to eat. And, uh, and the Lord says, you know, hey, Peter, what the Lord calls clean, don't call common. And this happens three times. This happens three times. And the lesson here is what God has made clean, we must not consider common. Now, when you, when you look at the scripture, when you look at life, the Bible tends to divide things. We, we like to divide things into sacred and secular in our society. Sacred are things to do with church. Secular is things like work. But that is a false dichotomy in the kingdom of God. God doesn't divide things into sacred and secular. God tends to divide things into clean and common into sacred and profane. Things that are clean are things that are appropriate for us to be involved with. Holidays, I think, are a clean thing before the Lord. Not every holiday, 
I mean, you can go to a holiday in some parts of Ibiza, and that's probably not a clean thing before the Lord. But holidays in general are clean. I don't think God is bothered when we go out to eat. Uh, I don't think God is bothered by, you know, us enjoying our homes and things like that. These things are all clean. They're all sacred before God. Our work is a clean thing unless you're working in some sinful industry. Your work is a clean thing. It is a sacred thing before God. And we need to be careful because we tend to call some things that are clean, unclean. And the point that's going to come out of here, that we're going to see here in, in, in just a little bit, is that people are clean before the Lord. But we need to be aware of this. Be looking at these categories and be sure that we don't call something common that God has said, no, this is clean. It is God who determines what's clean and unclean or what's clean and common. Uh, and common, by the way, if you, you want to get the picture, uh, it's a bit, imagine a drinking fountain where there's not, the water stream is not out so you really have to put your lips on the drinking fountain and imagine being in a queue of 4,000 people using that same drinking fountain. You know, what if you're 4,001? You know, how do you feel about that? You know, that's kind of the idea here. You know, something that is common, something that's overused. And so, so God sets the standard here. And he's saying now, in terms of food, Peter, all things are clean. And he's about to say, Peter, in terms of people, all people are clean. Before they were not. Before, as a Jew, if you went and hang, hung out with a bunch of non-Jews, you had to be ritually purified. But God is changing this reality because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross and dying for the world and dying for all of us. So then, uh, after this, uh, there's a knock on the door. The guys arrive. Uh, the Lord speaks to, to Peter and says, Peter, these guys have come. Uh, I want you to go with them without hesitation. And that, that phrase translated without hesitation can be translated that way, but I think a better translation is go with them without making a distinction. In other words, go with them as if they're Jewish guys. Go with them as if they're normal people. Go with them without making a distinction between you as a Jew and them as Gentiles. You just need to go. You just need to go. And God wants us to make no distinction among people. God wants us here, he's teaching us not to make a distinction among people. Whether they're Christians or non-Christians, whether they're Jews or Hindus, we don't make a distinction. Now that doesn't mean that all people are Christians, by the way. What it does mean is that we need to treat all people the same. We need to treat all people as human beings for whom Jesus died. We need to treat all people as if they have value before the Lord. All people need to be, treat, need to be treated with honor, respect, value, because Jesus died for all people. And so God is, is saying... Peter, don't make a distinction here. Treat them all the same. And so God comes and uh, he goes in there and he gathers around and he's pretty amazed 
I mean, uh, Peter goes down, he, he goes to, uh, and he's pretty amazed at Cornelius' house. Cornelius has gone, Cornelius has gone and got all of his friends and his relatives, and he said, hey guys, come, I've got this really important guy coming, his name's Peter, he's coming, you've got to listen to this, and look at the persuasion and the, and the influence that Cornelius has. I mean, the house is packed, he probably had a large house as a Roman centurion, it's packed out, it's packed out with people, and, and Peter comes in and says, wow, this is amazing. And you know what? God is showing me that we must not call any person common or unclean. Those are verses 24 to 29. Peter says, we, this is what God shows me now. No person is common or unclean. All people have worth and value before God. All people have worth and value. So when you go to work tomorrow or on Tuesday and you're hanging out with a bunch of non-Christians, those non-Christians have worth and value before God. If you have a Jewish boss, he's got worth and value before God. Uh, if you've got some Hindu compatriots, they have worth and value before God. And we must acknowledge their worth and value. We must not treat people as if they're unclean. But so often we do that. So often we think, oh, if I hang out with that person, I'm going to be polluted. Uh, if I talk to that person, they're going to influence me away from the gospel. Uh, and, and it's going to draw me away from the Lord. I won't be able to follow him. And God said, no, do not treat anybody as unclean. Do not treat any human being as common. And the reason is because Jesus Christ has died for all human beings. Pretty good so far. Number five, number five. Peter starts to, to talk here. This is verse 30 to 33. Oops, no, I put the wrong, I really hate it when I do that. Put the wrong verses in there. Um, so Peter opened his mouth, verse 34. Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Oh, no, okay, 30 to 33, sorry. Uh, Cornelius said, four days ago in this hour I was praying at my house in the ninth hour and behold a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by God. Even though God is at work in the world beyond what we can see, that was the first point, even though that is true, God does not work apart from his church, apart from his people. In that earlier example of the Indonesian island, even though God was at work in that village before the missionary came, the missionary still had to come. Around the world now, <clears throat> one of the number one ways that Muslims are coming to faith in Christ is through dreams and visions. But even when they have dreams and visions, God is leading them to Christians so they can hear the gospel. One of the real dangers that I see oftentimes in, in the church, and I hear from a lot of church leaders, uh, they'll say, oh, God's at work in, in the world in ways we cannot see. 
but then they do use that to discount the importance of the church. So if God's at work in the world in ways we cannot see, then we're not really needed. We're not really that important. But that's not what God wants us to take away from this. God is at work in the world in ways we cannot see, but God will always work through his people through the church. The church is not ancillary to what God is doing in the world. The church is at the center of what God is doing in the world. We as God's people are at the center of what God is doing in the world. God is at work, but we are indispensable to the Lord. We are indispensable to the Lord. Then number six, and the sixth one, and this is uh, in in verse 34 uh, to 43, the sixth one is where a lot of people get confused. Peter opens his mouth and says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, when you read this, it's very easy to think, oh, okay, all you need to do is fear God, do what is right. doesn't really matter about Jesus. Jesus has already done what we need. So we fear God, do what is right, and we get saved because we're acceptable to God. That is not what the text is saying. That is not what the text is saying. When the text talks about uh, God uh, showing uh, that people being acceptable to God, what the text is saying is that God welcomes people from all backgrounds, from all over the world. So we could say it like this. God shows no partiality and welcomes those who fear God and do what is right but all people must hear and respond to the gospel in order to be saved. God doesn't show any partiality. God shows favor to people from all backgrounds, from all around the world. God welcomes people whose hearts are soft. He welcomes them, but they still have to respond to the good news in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. There's no salvation outside of Jesus. Jesus is at the center, and that's why after saying what he does, Peter goes on and presents the gospel of Jesus Christ. He presents clearly what Jesus did, and that by believing in Jesus, we have a forgiveness of sins. We have new life in him. So he's very clear here in what he says. So God doesn't show partiality. God is welcoming people, but they still have to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. They can't be saved outside of Jesus. They still need Jesus. And then we see what happens. Peter is talking, and it doesn't really even get to the end of his sermon. The implication there is that he's going to go on uh, quite some more time. As we can see in other places, Peter can talk a lot kind of like me. I, you know, I, I'm not criticizing Peter, by the way. He can talk a lot. But then what happens? All of a sudden, he's, he's talking. In the middle of the talk, the Holy Spirit falls upon the people. They're transformed. Some of them are, are you know, speaking in tongues. Uh, others might have been prophesying, but they all had an encounter with God. They all have this conversion experience. That's extraordinary. And what this is showing us very clearly 
is that God is the one who converts people and fills them with the Holy Spirit so that we can only confirm and celebrate what God has done. The whole call to baptism at that time was simply a confirmation. Baptism was a confirmation of what God was already doing. And so often we get caught up, I think, as Christians, because we start to think, I need to convert people. I need to get people into the kingdom. I need to persuade people that Jesus is right and that the God that they worship is wrong. You know, I'm responsible for sharing the message in such a compelling way, such a powerful way that people will respond to that message and they'll get saved. And that if people aren't responding to the message and getting saved, then somehow I failed. And that's false. That's not a biblical understanding at any point in time. It's not a biblical understanding of what God is doing. In this case, with Peter, you know, number one apostle Peter here, he's talking, he's not given an altar call. You know, a lot of churches, they say, well, we got to give an altar call. We need to make people respond. He's not even given an altar call. The Spirit's stirring in their hearts, and they're coming to Jesus. They're surrendering their lives to Jesus. They're getting converted. There's no altar call. There's no, hey, I'm going to raise my hand. There's no 32 verses of Just As I Am or, or some other song that, you know, is sung enough to get people in the mood to respond. Uh, there's none of that. He just shares the message and the spirit falls and the people are converted and they respond to the message. And all that Peter can do at that point is say, hallelujah, let's get some water here for baptism because uh, these guys need to get wet. We need to confirm what God's doing here. And we need to realize this, that God's at work in the world, but he's always working through us. He's always using us, but the Holy Spirit is the one that brings people to conversion. And when the Holy Spirit's moving, we see that a lot. Sometimes we see that less, but it's the Holy Spirit who converts people. And so all we do is treat people with honor and respect as people for whom Christ died, show no distinction amongst people, don't look down on them, don't look up to them, show no distinction on them, clearly share what Jesus Christ has done when we have opportunity, when people are listening, and then allow the Holy Spirit to work and do what he wants to do, trusting that the Holy Spirit will do it. That's what it tells us. If we are to love our neighbor, and that's the whole point of this sermon series, loving our neighbor. Loving our neighbor means treating them as people for whom Christ died, telling them the good news about Jesus, and allowing God to work in their hearts, bringing them to Jesus Christ. And if we'll do what God has called us to do, God is on the move, and God will continue to work to accomplish everything he wants to do to the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that in this word you've shown us how to treat the people around us, how to love them and care for them, show them respect, realizing you're on the move, God, and I thank you for how you're on the move. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us to be partners with you in seeing the harvest come in, seeing people follow Jesus. 
Lord, help us as we go back into the, in the workplace this week. Help us to serve you faithfully. Help us to love people as you love them, to treat people as you treat them, to be aware that you are at work in their hearts in ways we cannot see, to share when you give us opportunity, and to see the great things that you will do through us in the lives of our coworkers, families, and friends. We love you and praise you. Thank you for all of this through Jesus Christ. Amen.